Welcome again to the Professional Practice Podcast with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London. Today, we're joined by Jeff Wilkinson, Managing Director of Wilkinson Construction Consultants, a private sector building control services company. Jeff is renowned for his work as a building inspector with over 20, sorry, with over 35 years experience. He's older than he looks. Yeah, <laughs> And he writes a monthly column in the AJ, Architects Journal, and is a regular on the mainstream media. Today, we're going to talk about some of the issues around the Building Safety Act uh, and its impact on practice, as well as some of the changes to look out for. We can't do it all because it's too much and it's changing all the time, but we'll give it a go. So thanks, Jeff. Thanks for joining us. Before we start, uh, we do the backstory thing as to where you're from, how you got into this game. So, going way, way, way back in time, I am the son of a carpenter, and uh, having been brought up in a house where you had plans, uh, it made sense for me to be in construction. So, I then went out, looked for the first available job that paid half decent money, and that was a building inspector. So, in 1983, I joined the Greater London Council as a building control trainee, and I've been in the industry ever since. I've worked for large practices, small practices, large-ish local authorities, and small local authorities. Yes, I've seen most of it over the years. In terms of the Building Safety Act, just so I can clarify, because I'm a little bit confused about this myself, uh, do we still call you an improved inspector, or you call a building control approver, or a registered building inspector? I don't know what's what's the right thing now. Yeah. Okay, so uh, there's a nice raft of new terms. So as of today, we are still approved inspectors, but from October, individuals and companies will effectively need to register with the uh, building safety regulator, who to all intents and purposes, the HSE, but all building inspectors, whether they are local authority employees or approved inspector employees, working public or private, will need to register themselves as a registered building inspector. So the generic term for what we are, are registered building inspectors, uh, but as a body, uh, we're likely to be known as a building control approver. It's all the same meat, it's just slightly different gravy. Okay, you just have to change all of your business cards. Yeah. Yeah, there's no such thing as a free lunch, uh, Jeff. So uh, we, we discussed some of the issues about uh, principal designers' duties with the Blue Safety Act on a, on a previous program. Uh, so we'll catch up with some of the general themes if we can. We'll see how far we get. Yeah. So first of all, there's this thing, the, the higher risk buildings uh, label. So first of all, as you say, October 2023 is a key point, and all higher risk buildings have to be re- registered with the building safety regulated by that time. So two things. Can you just clarify what a higher risk building might mean these days? Uh, and what the role of the regulator is. Okay, so the current summary of it is effectively any building with a floor over 18 metres in height with two or more residential units uh, within it. Anything that comes under that kind of uh, category is likely to be uh, picked up uh, say under the new legislation. But it's also worth pointing out, and I'm sure again we'll deal with it, it's not just high risk buildings that or HRBs, as they're known, uh, that are covered by the changes under the Building Safety Act. There's a whole load of it that applies and cascades all the way down. But uh, there is also indication that hospitals, etc., will also fall within that. So anything really where there is a, a fire strategy that involves stay put or phased evacuation are likely to fall within it. Currently, as I say, it's it's the high-rise residential buildings or buildings containing residential units um, that, that fall within the, the current categories. Yeah, so that could literally be a 60-storey building with just two flats on the ground floor. 
That was uh, yeah, or, or more likely on the top floor. Well, I appreciate yeah. that. I, I was just bending the stick for effect. Uh, yeah, just to show how daft some of it is. But yeah. um, or, or maybe not, depending on your viewpoint, I suppose. Look, just to, just to cl- clarify, because you, you mentioned uh, we're at uh, February 2023 now having this conversation. Um, and there was news stories in the BD last mm-hmm. month saying that 60% apparently of all high risk billing applications, Gateway One applications to the regulator were refused. Mm-hmm. I was just wondering whether, I mean, if you've got inside track on that, whether that was like teething problems, whether it was just incompetence, whether it was staffing issues with the HSE or what? Okay, so I think that the first thing we perhaps need to, to mention is that um, although we're saying these high risk buildings need to be regulated by October, we've already seen what we refer to as Gateway 1 in place. So what we're talking here is um, about applications through Gateway 1, which is the planning process. So at planning stage, you need to have put in a detailed um, fire strategy, detailing things like the the escape um, proposals, how the fire service is going to access the building, what kind of alarm system you're going to be using. It is quite a detailed piece of information and work, as opposed to the sort of generic just layouts that you may have submitted previously. And as you quite rightly say, uh, well over half of those are currently being rejected because there is simply insufficient information being provided. Is it teething problems or is it symptomatic? I think it's a bit of both. I think... um, Designers are not yet used to putting that degree of information together. And secondly, you're still seeing a degree of competence that needs to be demonstrated and isn't in the design process itself. So you really do need to pretty much engage with building control or fire engineer prior to even putting your planning application in now. So where it used to be planning, then building rigs, it's now pretty much building rigs, then planning. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, there's a logic to the fact that if you did a planning application for a scheme, which then got approval and then went to billing rates, and they said you need another first there or whatever it might be, yeah. you have to go back to square one again. So it's a lot of time yeah. wasted. So it's yeah. design early on in the process. But those, when you say you have to get you know information from a fire engineer, would you wouldn't be working as an independent approved inspector on those jobs, would you? Because that's handed over to the HSC. Yeah, so j- just just for clarity, that we, when we're saying about engaging with building control, we're saying basically you need to have the equivalent of a building control CDMC advisor, or you need to be doing that that element yourself because it's not sufficient, as I say, just to put a set of layouts together. You'll actually need something far more detailed than you you previously. Um, had because you you now have to demonstrate even at the planning stage that you have suitable and sufficient competency in order to get your application even registered and, and processed in in the first instance and that is frequently missed yeah so look just very quickly then since you we've gone on to gateways give us a brief overview of gateway two gateway three then okay so yeah j- just to add uh, extra difficulty to to the whole of the process gateway one was effectively implemented through the the town and country planning regulations on that particular subject we've seen some very bizarre stuff where the fire safety strategies are now being asked for by planners on domestic extension work Um, that was not 
what was actually said within it. Um, it creates lots of work and we'll happily accept any of that work because uh, we're like that. But the, the principal point here is gateway one was you put together your initial uh, fire safety strategy. This is all part of something that's known generically as the golden thread, but essentially it's ensuring that what was originally designed is incorporated in detail design, retained in the tender, and then goes out through the construction phase and is handed over at, at completion. So gateway two within that process is before work start on site, you need to have detailed approval of the scheme. So at that point, you're starting to, to look into, uh, into much more detail. How will your smoke control system actually work? You know, what where are you going to put the detectors to actually make this thing work? Which doors are fire doors? All of that needs to be completed. Also, all of our general thoughts and all the discussion at the moment are about fire safety. The Building Safety Act isn't just about fire safety. So when you're getting to Gateway 2, you could also be um, asked for any other safe, relevant safety information. Now, that could be, for example, a full set of structural calculations. So you've actually done the detailed design for that, particularly for uh, taller buildings uh, over 18 metres. You might start, you might need to have provided disproportionate collapse assessments, for example. So effectively, you can no longer um, design and build is something that we, we refer to frequently, uh, where it's more a case of build and then design. We cannot do that anymore. You do need to have the plans in place before you commence the relevant part of the work. Um, and in terms of uh, the safety elements, that's that's essentially the design needs to have been completed and approved by the what will become the uh, building safety regulator. Yeah, um, so, so very quickly, you, you said yep. it, you said it a little bit quickly there, but design and build mm -hmm. is effectively outlawed in the scheme. To, to all intents and purposes, for these high risk buildings, you have to have got the design in place before you start building. OK, so the, the, the way in which we have traditionally seen design and build, where you get a very generic thing, then you hand it over to the contractor and the contractor starts on site and he develops the design as, as works progress is effectively outlawed because you have to have had the upfront design work done before you start. OK, it is an offence under the new legislation once the thing actually gets implemented in full to have commenced work without having that approval. As such, the building safety regulator potentially can come down and issue you with a stop notice, preventing any further work on site if they're unhappy. And also uh, there are uh, financial and potentially criminal um, implications for this should you carry on building without the necessary consents in place. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. Just in terms of timescales, you know, there you are, merrily going along, going to put your planning application in with all this additional extra bits yeah. and bobs. What about the the approval process? I mean, is that in hand or is that going to drag on or okay. what? Okay, so the one of the first things that needs to be fleshed out and is in discussion at the moment is what the transitional period will be because you're obviously going to have projects that are on the drawing board as of today that will have commenced as of tomorrow, for example, but won't actually need to be registered until after, say, October. So there is going to be that kind of transitional period that's going to be involved. And it is unclear 
at this point in time exactly how that's going to happen. So as part of the raft of consultations that you're seeing at the moment, um, that is one of the things that needs to be nailed down and agreed because the responsibility for overseeing that project transfers from one body, whether it's the local authority or the um, approved inspector, to the new building safety regulator. And as a result of that, effectively, they become the decision makers. So we're going to be having lots of discussions about projects having uh, approved plans or plan certificates in place and what effect and what validity they will have um, when the building safety regulator takes over, assuming that the transition period is extended and they take over during that rather than allowing the existing building control body to see the project through. Perhaps more critical still is what we refer to as Gateway 3, which we haven't actually mentioned yet. So Gateway 3 is occupation. And prior to occupation, not only do you have to have had your approval in place, you need to also have shown that everything has been commissioned and is in place as was originally intended. Where this becomes really important is any elements of change control throughout the, the whole of the process. So potentially very minor things like, let's say the cavity was originally designed at 90 millimetres and for whatever reason, it's been decided that that will change to 100 millimetres. That change needs to have been recorded on the details, if there's been a change of materials, uh, if the location of the fire stoppings changed, if a petition has been admitted, any of these things that clients like to add into the, the process or contractors decide that they couldn't do need to have been correctly monitored and recorded during the design process and approved importantly, and approved before you get to handover. If you go to hand over a building and what you have got doesn't match the previous elements of the golden thread. You are effectively in breach of the regulations and you have to get the retrospective approval for that change uh, that's now suddenly been discovered. Um, so it is vitally important that having established what it is you're going to do, you actually do that, record that you've done it and make sure that's what's delivered at the end of the project. So just on this point, so if you move a wall... I mean, which happens all the time, doesn't it? Let's say not insignificantly, not, not an inch or yeah. two, but, you know, whatever. Yeah. That may affect compartmentation. It might affect Absolutely. something or other. So you, you will have to, so you will have to get that move, not just approved by the client and the QS and cost it up before you issue your AI, but also yep. approved by the regulator. Yep. Let's take that as an example. Let's say you've got a smoke control system that's designed to deal with 10 metres cubed, for the sake of argument. If you move that wall and you've then created a space that's 15 metres cubed, or you've omitted it and you've now got 30 metres cubed, then that fan needs to be upgraded, redesigned, and all of that information correctly recorded into the system. So what seems as though it could be quite a minor change actually has a very significant change on the, the project overall. I'll give you another example. Quite often you'll have a corridor and down the corridor you have a set of smoke stop doors, okay? If you move the location of the smoke stop door by a couple of meters, that can actually change the dead end condition. It could change the way that the smoke vents have been designed. Uh, it could have a, a multiplicity of effects on the fire strategy. It's simple things like where the smoke detectors are located. It could create too longer uh, area or too shorter area, depending on what you've got. So every one of those effectively needs to go back. So the way in which the industry has worked up until now needs to fundamentally change. 
we have had a system imposed upon us, basically because the way we've worked up until now has been, frankly, not good enough. This is the way all other industries tend to work. You don't get halfway down the production line of a Ford Fiesta and then suddenly say, you know what, we'll stick another couple of wheels on it. That has actually been designed, changed, reviewed and implemented as part of a a formal process. And that's what construction has got to get its head around. That's what Dame Judith Hackett meant when she said that there has to be a fundamental change in the way in which we design and build. Yeah, we'll come on to what Judith Hackett said and uh, what's actually happened uh, in in a minute. Is it the case that were you not to be permitted to be the approved inspector on a higher-risk building, might you be taken on as an advisor? Because if if, if I'm shifting a wall and I have to get approval, maybe I'll shift one wall a day, in which case, could I just with confidence do that, knowing I'm going to get approval because I've got somebody like yourself sitting behind me saying, don't worry, it'll be fine. You should So certainly it is creating a consultant's charter in many ways, because if you as designer are not competent to be making that decision, you are going to effectively have to employ someone who is competent to make that decision. But regardless of whether you're doing it or not, you will still need to have got approval for it. So the fact that someone in your team has said, yes, it's okay to do that, isn't in itself sufficient because somewhere along the line, you still have to get the the formal approval. And bear in mind that, as I say, if you're not talking to the approved inspector or to the local authority person under the new system, they are not the decision maker. The decision maker is the building safety regulator. Um, So it's important that you understand that whereas at the moment you might be directly engaging with an approved inspector and they'll run through because they're decision maker and what you agree with them, you've agreed with them. On this new system, you will need to be talking to the building safety regulator. Why do I say that's important or why am I drawing your attention to it? Because in the case of the building safety regulator, they are unlikely to be working on a fixed price basis. So what you're going to get is you are going to get charged on an hourly rate basis. Effectively, it's fee for intervention style of operation. So if you go back to the building safety regulator every three days to ask a question, they will charge you at their hourly rate for answering that question each and every time that you ask that question. Happy days ahead. Uh, Okay, I'll I'll let that sink into the the listeners. Just going back to where we were before we went up to the gateway thing, we've had this kind of 18-metre conversation. By the way, 18 metres is measured from what? The lowest point externally to the finished floor level? Okay, so you have a range of different um, measurement criteria depending on which bit of the, the regs you're generally talking about. And again, this is where confusion tends to reign. For the purposes of the higher risk building definition, it's effectively from fire service access points to the height of the the most highest occupied floor. Okay, so it's that's the criteria. So potentially you might have a bit of plant space or something up on the roof that isn't an occupied floor and could therefore potentially be outside of the HRB. Uh, registration process so it's it's worth just double checking on on that do we think that there'll be quite a bit of gaming the system yes quite probably that uh, people will look to be just those few key uh, centimeters below the 18 meter criteria to avoid all of this because there is a huge difference 
a huge difference between the process that we're talking about for buildings under 18 metres in height and those over 18 metres in height, like the change control process. Absolutely. Uh, and we're talking about finished floor level, are we? Effectively, it's finished floor level, yeah. yeah okay. So thinner carpet, you might get away with it. <laughs> All right. So in terms of the 11 meter buildings, then what's the what's the effect? At the moment, there is no registration process. So the things that we're talking about at the moment, gateways one, two, three, aren't applicable to. But what you are seeing is a series of changes to the technical standards. So, for example, we've seen the changes to approved document B, which have introduced the requirement for sprinklers. So we've, we've already seen that. So you've got to, you've got procedural changes and you've got technical changes. On top of that as well, just to add even more confusion, you also have the Fire Safety Act itself. We can do another entire podcast and another entire day about that. Um, but as of the 23rd of January, buildings with a floor over 11 metres in height have to comply with certain other in-use regulations, like, for example, having checks uh, every three to six months on the fire doors. So one of the things that you need to bear in mind is that most of these things are best practice in any case. So even if you were only designing a building of, say, 10 metres in height, you really want to be getting your head around. This is a very, very clear direction of movement that we're, we're talking about here, um, whether it's driven by PI, whether it's driven by building insurance, whether it's driven by the industry regulatory bodies or whoever. There's a very, very clear direction of travel. And even if you are just that smidge outside, you will need to justify yourself later on. I'll give you an example of that. Within approved document B, when we talk about external cladding, it says even though the building may be under 18 metres in height, you need to justify why you've chosen to use a combustible material, taking into account the risk nature of, of the building itself. So let's say, for example, you had a high risk critical care hospital. Uh, it might be outside of the registration process, possibly. It might be outside of the 18 metre rule. It could have been designed so it just avoids the legislative process. If there were a fire later on, you still need to justify why you chose to use that particular product. So the whole concept here is that the designer should be looking to design as low as reasonably practical ALARP or however they uh, like to, to refer to it, but try to design the risk down. So even if it doesn't apply, think about what you're doing. Do you think that this is a good idea in the first place? Okay, so there's going to be a lot of risk analysis and uh, insurance liability and precautionary principle embedded in designs in the future. Uh, yes is the quick answer, and I haven't even mentioned the Defective Premises Act yet. No, that is a different programme. <laughs> I'll be careful to do that one very, very soon. Just then in terms of approved document B, since you mentioned it, so they had a new approved document B, which came into force on December the 1st, and yep. by three weeks later, they had a consultation on approved document B <laughs> for uh, revisions. Um, yeah. In terms of, uh, I think the document says sprinklers in care homes, regardless <laughs> of height, removal yep. of national classes, Mm -hmm. and then staircases in residential buildings above 30 metres. So we can take a look at those in turn, because the, the sta second stair thing is actually mm -hmm. kind of taking over, isn't it? It's becoming a major mm -hmm. conversation. The second, it says in the consultation, the second stair provision, quotes, will only apply to new residential buildings. There is no evidence that suggests that existing buildings with a single stair above the proposed threshold pose a life safety risk. Mm -hmm. So 
New building has to have one because apparently there's a risk. Old mm. buildings don't have to have one because there isn't a risk. So mm. how do you square that circle? Uh, it's a very good question. Fortunately, I can claim I didn't write it to Gulf. Um, <laughs> how do you justify? In part, it's kind of like the discussions that we were having over seatbelts in cars. So you used to have a, a car in the 1960s and 70s uh, that didn't have seatbelts. And we basically brought in legislation that said it's no longer going to be acceptable to continue to expose this risk and that as a result of that all cars from this date forward are expected to have seatbelts fitted to them and in many cases they were then retrofitted to the cars of the 1960s and 70s that had predated that so it's it's that argument that goes around it one of the things that i find particularly difficult to square in the the process overall is that it hasn't really looked at what are the implications for this and does it really make any great difference to it? So, for example, one of the things that's been mentioned is a scissor stair. Um, a scissor stair effectively is where you've got two stairs pretty much within the, the same confines of the, the vertical shaft. Technically, it's two stairs, but it's of no greater benefit than you would have had if you had one stair. When you look at the majority of towers they tend to be by their nature slender so the second stair is likely to be inboard in a central core area so it's going to be maybe two three meters apart from the other stair how much additional benefit is that actually going to provide because if one stair is compromised by smoke or fire there's a very good chance that both stairs are going to be compromised by smoke or fire so this whole question about is it a benefit or isn't is a very interesting question because i don't see that at a simplistic level of one or two you can actually answer that it it, it isn't that kind of binary decision it should be a risk assessed decision in many cases, it could well be as well that actually a fire evacuation lift would provide more value as a secondary route of evacuation to the lift. If you are talking a building that's 60 metres in height, how someone that's a severe asthmatic is going to get out of that building, going down however many floors that were 30 floors or whatever it works out at, is a question we've got to ask. And the wider question generally about personal emergency evacuation plans is generally driving the discussion towards the use of, of lift evacuation. In fact, uh, if you look at the London plan, there's a whacking great section in there about evacuation lifts without any great thought as to how they might operate or might not operate. But again, separate question. It's becoming a blanket decision, isn't it? Rather than like taking it, on its it, merits. It is. Because it is. I think the chief fire officer is talking about um, two stairs in 18 metre buildings. Yeah. Um, and but even in the course of their conversation, they're saying you don't want to have firemen running up the stairs and the occupants yep. running the other way because that, that causes all kinds yep. of trouble. So they are effectively saying we want two staircases. If one of them is going to be a fire stair and one of them is going to be a public stair, in which case that's one stair for the yep. public, in which case you might have to have three stairs. You know, the whole thing just becomes slightly over the top. It, it, it does. And as you quite rightly say, in some sets of legislation, the two-stair rule kicks in at 18 metres in height. In other jurisdictions, they've said effectively, well, let's look at buildings of 11 metres in height. At what point do you turn around and say this ceases to be practical? 11 metres in height, that you're going to get sort of five-storey Georgian townhouses that would fall within that criteria. If we're saying that you're not safe as a resident in a bedroom five floors up, does that apply to the five-storey Georgian townhouse? 
But also, were you hinting in your analogy with the car industry uh, that maybe this doesn't work as an as a analogy of your analogy, but is it the case that you're thinking that actually once this is bedded in with new build, that they might start talking about retrofitting old yes. buildings? Yes, because um, if, if you're going to start undertaking a risk assessment going forwards, you have to ask the question, well, if, every, if we consider that the necessary level of safety for occupants in buildings is two stairs, when you're then looking to retrofit or upgrade or stick an extra story on top, I mean, obviously, there's, there's a lot of talk of airspace developments. Uh, there, there are regular uh, discussion points within the industry and within our office about adding on, you've got an existing five-storey block, you're adding a couple of stories on top of that. The government see that as a really good way of delivering additional housing units uh, without actually implementing massive uh, redevelopment of greenfield sites, for example. So that densification plan to, to put these additional units in place makes a lot of sense in some ways. But then, well, what are we going to do about those? Would we look to put two stairs into those? Once you then start putting two stairs into those, what about the seven story block next door to it? Why have we asked for it there and not asked for it there? And fire risk assessors, I'm sure by their nature and particularly with PI cover, will start to go, well, this is what the current guidance is. This is a defect against the current guidance and look to start getting uh, these things in, incorporated in, in perhaps some of the older buildings or at least have to justify why you've not put that second stair in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose it's a bit like uh, New York tenement blocks, which uh, mm. the entire aesthetic of uh, New York, Manhattan at least, is kind mm. of that external additional mm. staircase. Mm. And it might yeah. have been appalling when they did it at the beginning, but mm. we've now come to love them as a part of the feature of the of the city. So we'll we'll have to we'll sit on that one, see what happens. Mm. I'll be, I'll be back to you in a, in a couple of years' time. So the $65 million question, or actually probably a downside more than that, is what is the state of play with combustible cladding and class or Okay. UK designations are basically completely disappeared so we don't have that so we have the a1 s2 d2 kind of stuff all going on so we have that that classification um, we have banned acm with the acm pe uh, that is banned now on all buildings of all heights so uh, if you have a single story warehouse it's still banned going forwards uh, on on those buildings as well in essence, you really have to ask yourself the question that in the past, we didn't particularly take a view on external fire and external fire spread. That has now come very much to the, the forefront of, of the regulations. And once you start taking that into account, it becomes quite difficult to justify combustible materials on the, on the outside of buildings. So you, you really do need to start looking in depth at, at what that is. Um, the December change, which was then put out for consultation three weeks later, but perhaps you missed, was actually revised two days later to correct the errors in the revised version. So always keep an eye out to make sure that you're working to the latest uh, revised version. Yeah, about what, two days before Christmas Day, wasn't it? Something yeah, like that. yeah, exactly. So look, just to skip on, because uh, I'm probably halfway through the amount of questions I probably was going to ask you, so uh, I'll speed myself oh, we'll, up. We'll, we'll be back for part two if need be. <laughs> 
the, the issue of competence you mentioned before, um, first of all, there's competent persons and are slightly different to competence yes. of the profession we might want to you might want to talk about. But in terms of the Hackett's report, one of the key issues was this kind of competence issue. And she said, quotes, ignorance surrounding regulations and guidance, the lack of clarity on roles and responsibilities and the inadequate regulatory oversight is part of the problem or a significant part of the problem. But actually, I've seen articles and what have you uh, of late that actually people are getting more confused. This welter of change and uh, you know legislation is altering and policies are changing left, right and centre. So maybe you couldn't tell us about architecture, but how's it playing out for you in improved inspectors? How, what's, what's the state of the, of, the, of, the, the, of the mood of the industry at the moment? Yes, one of the, the great difficulties at the moment is to work out just what's going on at any point in time, and in particular, how that affects any particular projects. Um, because some of the changes that we've seen come in have got uh, transitional periods of 12 months. Some seem to have transitional periods of six months. It's really quite hard to keep a track of exactly which sets of rules are applying to which sets of buildings. For those of us old enough to go back in time to the previous um, significant review of building regulations, we'll be aware of the fact that industry turned around and said, we can't cope with all this random change. Okay, So the government set out a very clear path for regulatory documents, so the approved documents, to be changed on a three-stroke six-year rolling programme. So Mm -hmm. you had time to take on board what the changes were, review them, implement them. It gave those that were in the manufacturing industry, for example, time to tool up gear. They knew that the next change to Part L was going to come in three years' time, and they could be in a position to to adjust to that. It seems at the moment, no sooner, as you quite rightly point out, than you've got one consultation or one change closed then the next one comes along it's it's like the proverbial london buses we've not we've not had them for for 10 years and now they're coming along once every five minutes kind of thing so yes that makes it difficult and it makes it even more difficult for for those who are on the more on the periphery so if they're for those of us who are directly dealing with it from a, a regulatory point of view, obviously that's core to our CPD. We are going to be, you know, obviously updating. We're going to be rereading the documents. We're going to be making sure uh, that we're competent and up to date with with that um, with that information. But if you only deal with high rise buildings once every three years, because your practice is such that you're, you know, it's not your your day in day out bread and butter. You're going to have to effectively go back and completely retrain, relearn everything that you've learned. Also, what you you were doing on a project six months ago, and you are used to, and doesn't apply to the project that you're on today. Now we're really seeing that at the moment with the changes that came in under Floss parts F L O and S. Builders are still completing projects um, under the the previous legislation and don't, for example, need to provide an assessment of the openable trickle fence at at the completion of work. However, they'll start a job next week that's under the new legislation. Then they'll start a job in three weeks' time that's still under the old legislation but under the transitionals. 
So that project is back to not requiring it again. So this do I don't I kind of question is is a really massive one and is going to affect in particular the really large projects because we're not talking about those typically having a, a six month construction phase. We're talking about those having perhaps you know a two or even three year construction phase, um, which is going to take us beyond and into the building safety regulation. Yeah, exactly. Added on to that is the fact that so you have like different regulatory changes going on at the moment and you don't know which one necessarily you have to comply with or where you sit in the grand scheme of timescales. But also you've got the situation where people are looking to prospective possible future changes and that's, having that risk averse thing. Do I build my building and get it in before mm-hmm. the two staircase regulations come in? Yep. Or will I be seen as an unethical yep. developer mm-hmm. if I don't do it now? Yep. You know, it's a it's a minefield, isn't it? Yeah. Which which takes me back in part to the the discussion about seatbelts because you know industry was dragged kicking and screaming to provide seatbelts and safety. What you've then seen is without having to change the legislation, that industry has seen the value of safety within their product. So all of a sudden, manufacturers started to go, you know what? Blogs and Co are producing a car that's got two airbags. I'll produce one that's got four. And then I'll market my product as being more safe than their product. And then the next company comes along and they'll put side airbags in. And then you've got anti-lock brakes and then you've got collision detection. So what happens is the industry itself produces the innovation. The regulation is only there to drag people to do what they should be doing effectively in the in the first instance. And if industry can kind of get its head around the value of having safety at the forefront, you're not going to have to do, to do this. You don't design cars these days to pass the minimum standards of the MOT. Why are we still having a discussion about designing buildings to pass the equivalent minimum standard? I'll, I'll tell you my concern, mm. which is of no consequence Go. to anybody listening, but it's the fact that I think there's such a concentration on fire safety that in some ways maybe the next kind of grandful tragedy will be a structural collapse because we're not really having this kind of wider view and your analogy sits on the fact that the seatbelt conversation was led by Jimmy Savile Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I don't know that I was so, particularly going to, no, to, you to, going to choose to, to, to pick that. Uh, no, but you uh, see what I mean? We were, so busy, we were so busy looking at the safety issue that we miss kind of very obvious things in front of our very eyes. So that, that's my, my concern, because yeah. you've called this the new culture of liability and responsibility. Mm. Um, and, you know, you've given us very clearly upsides, but I do think that there might be a few downsides we have to be a little bit wary of in this. You, in this you are not wrong, because, again, this was one of the points that I was trying to make is that this applies as a, a much wider change. One of the things that we have seen really come to the forefront in the past three or four months is about the issue of ventilation and mould. We had the, the terrible situation of Awabishak dying as a result of inadequate ventilation in buildings. And yet virtually none of the new builds that we actually are providing and delivering as of a couple of months ago even, had the necessary standards of ventilation to them when you check them. We, we still have these other issues that are going on in the background, and it may well be that the next issue is not about fire safety, but the number of people that are dying from overheating in our buildings, the number of people who are suffering health-wise because of volatiles uh, within the air that they're breathing. There, there are so many of these other things which are easy to, to forget. So it, it buildings are very complex. 
Absolutely. And uh, so, first of all, for anybody listening wondering why I mentioned Jimmy Savile, it's because he ran the uh, seatbelt campaign back in the 1970s. I wasn't just uh, throwing that in for effect. But yeah, the other thing is, is that it's always been uh, all the heating and insulation versus condensation, kind of vicious triangle is kind of still ongoing. Security versus escape, etc. Precisely, precisely, precisely. So it's uh, it's a never-ending spiral uh, and uh, creates lots of work uh, for some people. So that, Jeff, is going to have to be it, uh, even though okay. I've got six million other questions for you, uh, and you're uh, you're always a pleasure to listen to. I'm going to have to Thank call you. it a day. So, look, uh, really, really interesting, huge topic, and uh, we've got lots more to talk about. Jeff probably won't be back because he's a very, very busy man. But if I can get him, I will. Jeff is never out of the media, so you can you're not going to miss him anywhere. He's in the HA, as I say. He's on conferences. He's on Twitter at Jeff Wilkinson. Uh, and his website is www.thebuildinginspector.org. That also is not going to change, I hope. Be aware of the fact it may well be changing. Oh, okay. All right. Well, for now, for now, he'll notify you if you get in touch. So, look, anyway, that's all we've got time for, I'm afraid. Please tune into Professional Practice Podcasts and listen to our archive, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Austin Williams. Thanks for listening. Till the next time, goodbye.